white. It was not mature yet. It still hurts. Scott Dugginton never came back to my house. That's not totally true. Um, and then actually, truth be told, um, then I waited another like five, six weeks for the second one. You could not tell the difference between the two, by the way, on the outside. I opened that one up. And actually, I probably should have opened it up about a week before. Because even though it tasted good, there was some soft spots in there. I waited a little long. Listen, on the outside, you really can't tell what's going on on the inside of a watermelon. We want to just, by God's grace, just completely pound in our heads for the next 12 weeks here in the book of James. Are we mature? There's just way too much of Christianity where none of us are mature, none of us are growing, none of us are changing. We have to mature. We have said that the theme for this book would be something of faith in action. What is the literal things I have to do to mature in the walk? And we feel like we've said this over and over. Uh, those who have taught from this very platform is the fact that, listen, there is a process of our sanctification that the Bible talks about. We don't just get saved and then stop. We don't just do some things. We don't just do a good work for about 10 years and then coast till the end. It is a continual maturation process. And the perfect man, the complete man, is the one that looks exactly like Jesus Christ. Some of you might look close, but I don't. And so if the goal is Jesus Christ, we have a long way to go. Don't think we're even close, guys. We have to be those that mature. And it's not something that's just going to, through osmosis and coming to church on Sundays, happen. There has to be an action to our faith. And that's what we're going to try to talk about for the next 12 weeks in the book. It's so funny how when you start studying uh, these books in different ways, um, or, or, or as an overall theme, you start to see the verses you have read, maybe since you were a kid, in a different perspective. And so remember last week, John talked about trials, right? And so this week, we're going to start a little bit with those kind of trials and then turn it into temptations. Remember who he's writing to. These are a people that are scattered because of persecution, I want you to think about that when you hear some of the things addressed in this book. He's writing to a people that are going through hard stuff, that are scattered, maybe not where they grew up. And he doesn't pull any punches. And I'm saying that because sometimes in our culture nowadays, we have this idea that loving someone means don't say anything bad to them. That's just not true. That's just not true. And so let's read here in chapter 1 of the book of James, We'll start in verse 12. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good and 
Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Again, it's another time, great king, where we sit simply in front of your majesty, and we would pray that you would do a work. May your Holy Spirit uh, control me, that we might be a people uh, that love your word and that enjoy the sanctification process. It is tough. There's times where we just don't want to. And so, Lord, I pray that you give us extra grace, extra mercy, that we will be more and more like you. Uh, thank you so much again as we have prayed so many times for your long suffering and your patience in dealing with us. Help us to be like you in that aspect. Lord, again we pray during this series of going through the book of James that we will see fruit of being under this teaching that we might have people's lives changed. In your name, amen. Verse 12 where it says, Blessed is the man who endures temptation. That is the exact same word for 13 where it says, let no one say when he is tempted. In fact, it's one of those crazy words in the original that you have to look at context to know which one he means. The word actually means going through a trial, a hard time, and it actually means being tempted to do something evil or sin. And it's simply by context that you get to figure out (laughs) um, which one is using. And that's why actually the book of James sometimes can be controversial. So right here in verse 12, blessed is the man who endures temptation. That's going along with what my brother spoke about last week uh, of trials in life. Let me try to quickly give this idea about trials, by the way. There's different types of trials. And one of the hard things about trials is understanding why you go through them. So I'm going to give you three that I know. And when I say trial, I mean like a tough time in life. Okay, a tough time in life. One... There are times where God is testing you. Know that. The Old Testament, it says he does it. He wants to see where the Israelites are at, and he gives them a test to see if their faith actually upholds. And the idea behind it is to increase their faith, never to shut it down. But he's going to give them a test to prove whether or not what they say they actually believe actually happens. And God does that today, sometimes through trial. We've said it over and over, sometimes in a joking way, never pray for patience. Guarantee you get a test. Don't pray for patience. It'll come. Don't worry about it. I'm just kidding. You should pray for patience, I guess. Okay, that's one in which the Lord tests your faith. Two, there are those trials in your life that you have no idea why it's happening, and neither will you, and it's actually something to do in the heavenly realm. The case of Job is the actual... Boom, perfect example. That is something happening between Satan and the Lord of what about this guy and Job's basically caught in the middle. There are things that happen in the heavenly realm that can affect us down here and that's up to God's sovereignty. That could be a trial. The third trial is you did something foolish and now there's consequences for your actions. You did something foolish you disobeyed, and now you're going through a trial because you done messed up. That's another trial. 
That's why that verse about praying for wisdom and God will liberally give it as long as you have in faith. That's why we have to pray for wisdom. God, is there something going on with my life? Is this a natural consequence of my decisions? Is this something happening in the heavenly realm that I don't know of? Is this you testing my faith? And a lot of times we don't get that answer. But the attitude towards it is still the same. It says, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who believe. My goodness. I think we do not talk again enough about the fact that there are crowns to be won as a believer. There's this attitude in the Christian walk that if we say, I want to get a crown, that somehow we're being prideful, somehow we're being selfish, and it's not the right motivations. Then you tell me why Scripture put it in there. You tell me why God would say, keep your eyes on the prize. You tell me why God would say, you get this crown, you get this crown, you get this crown. Don't mess up the system because of our actions, guys. God established that we would be rewarded with crowns as a believer for certain actions. So don't go against God's will. That's what he has willed to be done. And I like to pursue crowns. I think we all should. And I'm going to tell you why I think we should worry about why this idea of obtaining a crown matters. Because sometimes it actually puts makes you put stake in what you're pursuing. We fool around all the time. In America, everyone gets a trophy. And guess what happens? No one plays the game. Because it doesn't matter. When I'm a teacher and I'm doing things on the board and I'm sitting there and my students go, what do we win? And we say something like, the joy of learning. You can see the whole class go, hmm. And no one plays hard. If I pull out $20 out of my pocket and say, you guys get to win 20 bucks. They are working hard. The idea of a crown can sometimes be a merciful act from God himself. Saying there is something to achieve. It's not just something that we're doing down here for the fun of it. There is crowns to obtain. Keep your eyes on the prize. You guys remember, maybe, (laughs) it's in my mind. That's what was drilled into our heads when I played football at Fitch Senior High School. Keep your eyes on the prize. And what it meant was we work hard in August. And when you didn't feel like going through the heat and sweating and having four-hour practices and just getting banged up, that you kept your eyes on the prize. Hopefully the prize is we will be playing in December in the state championship. And when you played weak teams and you, didn't, you knew you didn't have to practice that hard, the coaches would kill us. they said, we're not playing this team. We're playing for December. Keep your eyes on the prize. Keep your eyes on the prize. Okay? And that's what we do when we go down through trials down here. If you do not have a heavenly perspective that all of this stuff that's happening down here is some way going to manifest itself one day in the place I live forever with my king of kings, it does not matter that much. But if you can keep that focus of saying it does matter, I have a prize to obtain. And yes, I want to give the Lord a bigger and better crown than you. Is that bad? I don't think so. This whole idea of like we're going to give the crowns back to him anyway, it doesn't matter. Baloney. That's not true. If anything, this is our chance to give back. To give the Lord some crowns. And so when we look here, it says, He will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. What motivates us to go through the trial, to pursue it with endurance, to come out saying, Lord, 
I went through the trial by your grace is our love for him. Guys, I loved the game of football. That's why you didn't mind getting beat up. That's why you didn't mind the long practice. That's why you did not mind all the pain, all the exercise. You loved the game. I played track in the spring just to get a letter on my varsity coat. Could care less about track. Do you think I played hard in track? No, I didn't. I struggled to run a mile in the beginning of the practice. We didn't sit there. We didn't practice that hard because I really didn't care. I was just there to kind of stay in shape for football. I never liked track. There are some of you here that aren't in love with the game yet. (laughs) You're not in love with the game. You have to be in love with the Lord to get through the trial. You have to be. You have to be in love with the faith. You are part of something that is worldwide, international, the greatest thing that's ever happened on earth. God made us and redeemed us. You are part of the number one thing, universal-wide. You're a part of it. If you don't love it, good luck on your trials. And the reason we're doing all this that I know my brother talked about last week is because now we're switching gears. After this whole idea of, listen, you're going to be happy when you endure through the trial, when you go through hard times. He switches and goes, but let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. Now we're getting into appealing to the flesh. Why? Where does this transition kind of come from? Number one, this is where we try to get practical. Your temptation to sin is going to be that much greater when you go through a trial. You got to know how it works. You go through a trial that was not your fault, that was not your circumstances. You can name any trial out there. The car broke down. There's no money in the bank. Um, you know, my friend was a jerk to me and it really wasn't my fault. I got yelled at at work. Um, the tree fell down in my house and now we have a hole in our roof. Any trial you want, it's at that moment where we go, now my next natural inclination is to sin and to gratify my flesh. Why? You've got to get something that feels good because you're going through pain. You've got to get something that feels good because you're going through pain. And he's saying, hey, when this happens, don't you dare think that when you want to sin, this is part of the trial that God's put you through. And Christians better know that. And as much as I know it, I started to reflect back and I went, oh my goodness, I have done this, where you are going through a trial, and now you want to sin, and you actually think, God's putting this temptation in front of me just to see if I'll pass this as well. And James is saying, you're wrong. That stuff does not come from God. In fact, it comes from the fact that we have a sinful flesh, and when we go through trials, that's what we naturally do. I need some pleasure. I need to feel good. I need to go get some things. It is not that. So be weary of that. In Deuteronomy 25, we talked about this before, way back when. 
in verse 17 of Deuteronomy chapter 25. It says, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt. How he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks, all the stragglers at your rear, when you were tired and weary, and he did not fear God. Amalek was a picture of your flesh. So don't think for a second in this battle against sin that when you go through hard times, your sinful flesh is not just completely excited to indulge in sin. That's who we are. And so what is the practical application of this? Sin is never okay. Guys, I just I know that sounds basic. I need to keep preaching it to myself. We are living in times where somehow we think sin's like, eh, it's kind of dealt with on the cross. It is never okay to sin. You were bought with a price. It is not okay to have a lifestyle where we just keep sinning. And we don't address it. We just go, well, that's who I am. You got anger problems? You got to work on it. You got to dig into the Word and have it change you. You cannot stay the angry person you've always been. You can't do it. It's not the Christian walk. And so... Sin is not okay, but as we go through temptation and trials, I want to practically talk about the fact that we need to be aware of the weights as well. Remember, remember in Hebrews where it says, let us run the race with patience, be careful of the sin that so easily entangles us, and the weights. I would say, as a practical thing, now this isn't something you have to do in life. But when you are going through a trial, I would not allow the weights into your life either. Because it will be that much easier to sin. Okay? So, I have heard um, (laughs) my friends say things like, well, you know what? We went through a trial. We had to go into debt because of it. We're in debt already. Who cares if it's a couple more thousand? That's not okay. So let's go through this practically. Something happened. Your car broke down. You have no money in the bank. You have to go get a car loan. Okay. In fact, the Bible does not say taking a loan is a sin. But now that you have that loan, you also want to gratify some things. You also say, you know what, I'm tired of this, man. I've been trying to uh, live the Christian walk. I've been trying to be good with my money. This car broke down. It wasn't even my fault. So you know what else I'm going to do? I'm going to go buy this and this, even though I can't afford it right now. Because I'm already taking the loan. You're gratifying your flesh. And it's not Okay. <laughs> And you know what the problem is? It's very hard to have those conversations with people. You've been going through a tough time, and you're sitting there going, oh, man, that couple, man, their car broke down. they got to go get a new car. Oh, man. And then you see them with, you know, they bought something else, and you're like, well, listen, we as a church go, well, you know, just they got to have something nice. I mean, they just went through a hard time. That's not necessarily true. <laughs> because all that stuff is depending on your flesh instead of the Lord being your joy and your strength. So I would say be very careful when you are going through a trial that you not only realize that your flesh is going to attack you, but that also your weights. There was a, a story that goes like this. Dr. Ralph Sockham wrote that while he was standing on the edge of Niagara Falls one clear, cold March day, wrapped in white winter garments, the falls glistened in the bright sun. 
As some birds swoop down to snatch a drink from the clear water, Sakman's companion told him how he had seen birds carried over the edge of the falls. As they dipped down for a drink, tiny droplets of ice would form on their wings. As they returned for additional drinks, more ice would weigh down their bodies until they couldn't rise above the waters. Flapping their wings, the birds would suddenly drop over the falls. I want to let you know as we talk about sin today, that typically it's a long pattern. It's a pattern, and it's something that gradually happens. You're actually going to see that in the next verses when it talks about conception to birth to um, all those things. It's a process. And so we have to be aware of the sin in our lives. Is it building? Is it growing? And the weight. These birds, were they getting anything wrong? They were drinking. And yet the circumstances around them, the atmosphere wasn't the best. And they continued to drink and suddenly it cost them their life. We have to be careful with those things that can weigh us down and acknowledge our struggle against the flesh. Two, temptation does not come from God. We talked about this before. This is the pattern of the book. When you're going through a trial and you're tempted to sin, it is not from God. It says very clearly, God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. I'm going to try to give you a reason why this is so um, not true, but it was just it was interesting to me as I pondered this. What? Why couldn't God tempt you with sin? Doesn't He have the right as a holy God? Like, isn't that a fair test? Like, hey, I forgave your sins on the cross. Let me put something in front of you and see if you go after it again, so I can test you with it. In my mind, sometimes that seems logical, until I realized. How much God hates sin. God absolutely hates it. Can't stand it. And so you would never put something in front of someone that you hated and hope they got into it. It's just not in his character. I thought about for myself. One of the things that has always driven me absolutely bonkers. This is just my James Clifford. I have been to some of the happy hour teachers get together after school. And after people get a few drinks into their system, they want to talk to me for the first time. I've had people, as we start to talk about something serious at school, say, hey, Clifford, why don't we get a drink and then we can talk a little more. If you know anything about me, I hate that stuff. (laughs) I think it's immature. I think it's ridiculous. Now, if you're one of those people, uh, I'm sorry. I'm just telling you how I feel. Okay? When someone needs a drink to be able to talk to me as grown adults, I seriously get anger problems. <laughs> now, that being said, I would never be the guy that goes, why don't you have a few drinks so we can talk? And, and, and try to put that out there. Because I can't stand that to begin with. That's why God can never tempt us with sin. He can't stand it. He would never dangle it in front of us. He hates it. You cannot as a believer say, God was trying to see if I'd be faithful. When I was flipping through the TV and I saw that show come on, God put that show on. Just to see if I'd pass the test. 
That is ludicrous. And we as Christians cannot think that way, guys. It is not in his character. Where does our desire to dig into our sin come from? Verse 14, each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires. Number one, practical application. Understand, as we've told a hundred times, but again, these things do need to be taught again and again. You have the wrong desires. I have the wrong desires. You get that, right? Each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires. Desires to do good? No. We all within ourselves have desires that are ungodly. And when we go through a hard time, especially in life, which everyone goes through, you have something that, again, the Bible talks about warring against your flesh. You have things pulling at you, saying, listen to me. I want some gratification. Those desires are real and they're powerful and you own them. And I own them. We own that, guys. Know who you are. We own that. And yet, having the desires to do bad things at times is not necessarily sin. This goes into the, oh, I can't believe I want to do X, Y, Z. If you don't act on it, you haven't sinned. Sometimes people get so messed up, if you only knew the thoughts I think. Okay, well, now we're getting into a little conversation of how long did you think? Did you enjoy the thought? Did we, did we meditate on it? But when things come and flash between our eyes and we say, oh, man, I'd love that. That's, that's a desire. That's part of your sinful flesh. But it doesn't mean you acted on it. Because as we keep going, it says, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And this is why in our maturing process, our faith in action, this is where we have to get a hold of. We have these desires. We went through a hard time. Okay. But did we allow conception to take place? Because conception is an act. Conception never happens just randomly. Nothing's ever born just out of nothing. Something happened in a process and something was conceived. There was an action. And so this is why we have verses against the flesh like, take every thought captive. Someone bother you, someone say the wrong thing to you, and you have the perfect rebuttal. And it's just going to tear them up. It's going to embarrass them. going to make you look good. That thought was not necessarily wrong until you open your mouth and do it. And there is a huge difference, guys. There is a difference when we act out these desires. Again, we talked about this is a big process. There was a story of a farmer who talked about the fact that there was a lot of cattle ranches around where they lived. And every once in a while, a cow would wander off and get lost. And so this person asked a rancher how a cow can get lost. And chances are they say, well, 
The cow starts nibbling on a tuft of green grass. And when it finishes, it looks ahead to the next tuft of green grass and starts nibbling on that one. Then it nibbles on a tuft of grass right next to a hole in the fence. Then it sees another tuft of grass on the other side of the fence, so it nibbles on that one and then goes on to the next one. The next thing you know, the cow has nibbled itself into being lost. (laughs) And the reason I think that's good is because this picture here of our sin, where we have a desire, it's conceived, it gives birth to sin. I know there's, you know... Nothing more beautiful than uh, having a baby and being pregnant, but it is definitely a different light here. <laughs> this is that whole process. We know how long that process is. Nine months in development. You have something that's so cool. It goes from one cell to four cells to a human being. And he's taking a different perspective, saying your sin is like that. It doesn't start full grown. When we think it's not a big deal that we just indulged in this sin a little bit. You like the cow just getting to another clump of grass, another clump of grass. There are people that have woken up in the middle of their lives and just going, how in the world did I end up here? How in the world did I ruin my life the way I did? And they are in a lifestyle of sin. No one signs up for that, guys. He's telling us, please. Now remember, these are those who are persecuted. Persecuted. They're scattered all about. And he's pulling no punches. When you are tempted to sin, don't do it. It's a process that grows and grows until it gives birth. And in the end result, it leads to death. Death. And so again, this whole idea of not sinning is because we love people. Because if they keep sinning, death's going to happen. Separation of something. Separation of relationships. Separation of peace, joy. Those kinds of things. Separation, death occurs because people are letting sin control them. And it just starts out with a little bit. I'm just kind of tired. The pendulum swung so far the other way. People are so worried about legalistic that no one cares about sin. Sin's a big deal, guys. It's a big deal. The thief has come to do nothing but rob, kill, and destroy. That is Satan's whole agenda, just to rob, kill, and destroy. There's nothing worth redeeming about his plans. Nothing. And so, in verse 16, he's going to say, Don't be deceived, my beloved brethren. What is the deception? Now, there's some different thoughts about this. But I'm pretty confident of what I'm about to say. It's pretty confident in oxymoron. It's possible. Don't be deceived about what? He's going to say every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Okay. He's saying, remember, you're going to go through a trial. It's going to be tough. Then you're going to be tempted to sin. And the reason we do 
is because it feels good. It gives us some kind of pleasure. And he's saying, don't be deceived. That pleasure you want, that feeling of comfort and peace and love and joy, I hear you. But never from your flesh. It comes from above. And this is where we get into lifestyle. This is where we get into the faith. This is where we get into maturing. Is that we are going to be a people that say, I believe that Jesus died on the cross and saved me from my sins. It doesn't stop there though. I also believe that pursuing and following His every single command brings good enjoyment, health to my life. And if I don't pursue Him and I go pursue my flesh, death happens. That's what the Christian believes, guys. I know it's a struggle, but don't get it confused. A Christian believes, if I trust in myself, death happens. That I have put my trust in someone else. And I believe that if I pursue the Lord Jesus, trials may come, yet every good and perfect gift will come from Him. I will have those things in the Lord. That's what the Christian believes. And so he's talking to a people who are persecuted. And he's saying, guys, if this isn't your focus, if you haven't convinced yourself in your mind, if you have truly not believed the gospel, you're not going to make it. And that's the constant struggle, guys. That's the constant struggle. When we trust our flesh, we say the sin wasn't that big of a deal. And we go against God's principles. He's saying, don't be deceived about this, guys. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. Listen, you want that? I know the one that can give it to you. It's God the Father. And he's so willing to give good gifts to his kids. Now, it says here, He comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. When I first saw this, I was kind of like, what? Father of lights? What in the world does it have to do with what we're talking about? No variation. No shadow of turning. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. There is no tricking with him. His light exposes the darkness. And so what he is saying basically is, listen, God doesn't change. No matter how much you get wrapped up in your sin and how cloudy things are and how much you enjoy that darkness, God has never said it's okay. And at the same time, God has always said, I will give you a better life than your sinful life. I will expose it to you. I'll show you where you're going. I'll show you that that path leads to death. I'll put you on the right path that leads to life. He has never changed that position. From day one of Adam and Eve. He has always said, there's no trickery here. Pursue me, you have life. Don't pursue me, there will be death. It's very crystal clear. And so why I say that is this. If this is his idea, 
Why does it seem like sometimes we change our view on sin? I don't want to sound old, but there is a truth. To, to in the, I don't care about the world. Premarital sex is wrong. And the church now sometimes is like, I don't know. Guys, that's, that's a bad state of the church. God has never changed. What God has called wrong has always been and will forever be wrong. It doesn't matter what the people are doing down here. And so he's saying that when you became a Christian, when you followed Jesus, that's what you signed up for. You signed up for the fact that God's going to tell me what's right and wrong. And then I'm going to live by it. Even if the world is going absolutely bonkers. Guys, there are some of us, especially in raising our kids, that we, we, just, we just don't, uh, don't want to address sin. Don't want to address it. We as older people don't want to address it. Younger people don't want to address it. And we say these things, well, you know, it's really hard to be a Christian nowadays, so at least they're not doing the big ones. That's what we're saying, guys. I've heard parent after parent after parent go, well, you know, it's kind of hard. They're only having sex with their girlfriend who they've had for four years. So, it's not okay. Sin is not okay. And God's saying, I have not changed. I, there's no darkness. There's no shifting of shadows here. I have made what is right and what is not right. Get on board. Don't be deceived. Everything good is coming from Him. Of His own will, I'm in verse 18, He brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. Man, that was that verse in this section that before I studied it for this message, I was kind of like, again, I don't know what that is. That's kind of like just one of those verses in the portion. This verse is like critical. <laughs> Do we remember again the first fruits? It's in Leviticus chapter 23, verse 10. The Israelites were told at the beginning, bring forth your first harvest. It was usually barley. Okay? And so the idea is the major harvest has not even started yet. It was the first plant that would come up that could be ready to harvest. You cut it and you gave it to the priest. And there was a few reasons why you did that. Okay? It was basically saying... We're going to, we acknowledge that everything we have is from the Lord. We acknowledge that. And so even though we need this food, we're going to give it back to the Lord. Because he's the one that caused it to grow. He's the one that gave it the sunlight, the rain. And we give it back. There was also a second part of that. That a harvest was coming. <laughs> a harvest was coming. And you also acknowledge during that they had a feast sometimes, the Jewish people, of this of the, uh, of the harvest where you said, okay, now let's celebrate the harvest that's coming. Well, in Leviticus chapter 23, verse 10, let me show you. I do want to read the verse. Because God's word should always excite us. And when we connect some of these dots, I think it's amazing. Leviticus 
Leviticus 23 and verse 10. It says, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land which I give to you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted on your behalf. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. The day after the Sabbath. Interesting. Passover is usually when it happened. They'd have Passover. Then they would have the Sabbath. The day after the Sabbath. Christ has been called the first fruits of his brethren. Do you know when Christ rose from the dead? The day after the Sabbath. Isn't that interesting? Little things that we would never see in Scripture. He's saying the first fruits here in James. He's saying, listen, remember all that stuff we did as Jewish people the day after the Sabbath? Christ rose from the dead the day after the Sabbath right after the Passover, being the first fruit. He consecrated himself fully to God. And the next part was, here comes the harvest. It is the idea of Christians saying, listen, even though I go through trials, and even though my flesh is raging and I want to sin, I will consecrate myself fully unto the Lord. And I will give myself to Him to be a first fruit. I don't have a say anymore. And the second part is, I have to do some of the harvesting. And that's where the Bible says, the harvest is plenty, but the laborers are few. The mindset of a mature believer is I'm going to go through hard times, but God is better. I'm going to put away sin, and then there's work to be done. A harvest. And that's my focus in life. The harvest. Seeing souls saved. Doing whatever my Savior has asked me to do. Because He is my first fruit. He did it first. He went to the cross for the punishment of my sins, and he rose again, claiming to be the first fruit, the first man to ever rise from the grave on his own accord. And Because of that, he has the keys to life and death. That's why when everyone dies, they will stand in front of him and give account for what they did with their life. He's the first fruit. And so, in this little verse here in James, with all this deep stuff going on, it just kind of says, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruit of his creatures. At first glance, this doesn't seem to me like, I don't even know what that means. It means you give yourself wholly to him. That's what it means, guys. He's writing to a scattered people. The first chapter, the first part of the letter, before we get into all this other practical how to do the Christian walk, the first thing he wants to address is you got trials, you got sin, and you're going to consecrate yourself fully. Because that's what a Christian does. That's what a Christian does. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. 
And when I think about lifestyle Christianity, and I think about people who are going through trials and then maybe tempted to sin and going, wait, is this of God? Is this of my flesh? And then talking about the first fruits and it's the gospel. And then he says, so then, here's, here's his little practical application. Swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. That's how you start this idea of a Christian lifestyle. Being quick to listen has the idea of drawing close, that you actually want to lean in so you can hear the person. It's the idea of, listen, when you want to sin, when you're going through hard times, who are you listening to? And do you listen to God? Do you draw near to Him? Do you listen to people's advice in your struggle against sin? Do you listen to what's being preached on Sunday morning? Do you listen? Do you listen? Do you listen to the encouraging words people have given you through your trial? You know, sometimes God sends us people to be merciful to us during a trial, and we just shove them off. What about being slow to speak? And I know we're going through these fast. I just thought the opposite of slow to speak is obviously fast. I thought, you know, when we go through trials and temptations, what are we always fast to say? I feel like we're always fast to defend ourselves. Was it my fault? Was it my fault? Was it my fault? And we're always quick to complain. We're always fast to say what's wrong. Always. And so in this idea in the book of James, he goes, just be slow to speak. I know you're going through a lot. Be quiet. That's hard. That is crazy hard not to complain. That's crazy hard to not blame someone else or defend yourself. He's saying, just slow down. And Christ is the ultimate example of that, right? Who did not open his mouth. Slow to wrath. I feel like we're getting to the point in the church at large. We're getting so mad at the situation of the world that we have completely shifted our focus on our calling and all we care about is what they're doing. We get so mad at the state of the world and how crazy it is, we have completely shifted our focus on our calling. That the harvest is there, ready. That we are to be a people that endure. That we are to love our Savior. And he's going to go through these next couple weeks here at Brantford exactly what a Christian should do. It's a sanctification process. But I want to encourage that as angry as we can get at what's going on out there, don't lose sight of your calling. Don't lose sight of your calling. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for who you are. Help us in this battle of sin. Help us to just uh, remember that you would never tempt us with sin. Lord, help us to just conquer it. We need so much help in conquering our sin. Help us to acknowledge how much better you are. Thank you for your goodness and grace. In your name, amen.